Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello and welcome to In Social Work. I'm your host for this podcast, Charles Sims. The preamble of the NASW Code of Ethics states that social workers should strive to end discrimination, oppression, poverty, and other forms of social injustice. The International Federation of Social Workers Statement of Ethical Principles calls for social workers to challenge negative discrimination and unjust policies and practices In the United States, racism remains a long-lasting and pernicious example of those types of policies and practices. If social work is to be a leader in the fight against this particular social injustice, social workers must be trained to identify and address racist policies and practices. This will not be an easy task in a society that has declared itself to be post-racial. So, how might social work and social work education prepare the new and perhaps not so new social worker to undertake this challenging work. Today's guest will discuss anti-racism work through their development of the Anti-Racism Project. Ashley Davis, Ph.D., is a licensed independent clinical social worker and an assistant professor of social work at Wheelock College in Boston, Massachusetts. She teaches in both the BSW and MSW programs. Her courses include social work practice with children and families, social research, and the dynamics of oppression and privilege. Dr. Davis's scholarship focuses on anti-racism and white privilege in social work practice and on effective teaching strategies for helping social work students gain the knowledge and skills necessary to promote racial justice. She is active in anti-racism work in her community and maintains a private practice in which she sees couples and families from diverse backgrounds. Allison Livingston, Ph.D., is an assistant professor of social work at Salem State University, Salem, Massachusetts. She is also a licensed independent clinical social worker with nearly 15 years of experience. Dr. Livingston's teaching research, and social work practice interests are in the areas of racial justice, analyzing and eradicating multi-systemic privilege and oppression, social identity equity in education, and student mental health. Her practice experience includes work in psychotherapy, teaching and mental health, and racial justice consulting. The Anti-Racism Project was developed and led by our guests during their doctoral training. In this podcast, Drs. Davis and Livingston discuss the project's development, research, and their experience as the group's facilitators as well as members in the group process. They identify four important themes that seem to emanate from their work. The experience with racism during their doctoral education, the nature of white privilege, developing the ability to teach about racism and anti-racism work, and their thoughts about their career trajectories following their experience. 
they provide a rationale for their contention of the need to make equity work a core component of doctoral level training in preparation of teaching and becoming social work leaders. They also offer their thoughts on changes that could be made to better integrate equity and anti-racist content into education at the doctorate level. Drs. Davis and Livingston were interviewed in January of 2016 by Berg Miller, a student in the Ph.D. program at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Hi, Dr. Livingston and Dr. Davis. I'm delighted to be speaking with you both today. Can we start with the story of how the Anti-Racism Project came to be? Sure. First, thank you very much for having us and for inviting us to have a conversation about our work. So Allison and I were doctoral students taking a clinical practice course. And in that course, we read an article by Dr. Betty Garcia and Dr. Carol Swenson, two social work faculty members. And their piece was called Writing the Stories of White Racism. And in this piece, they described a shared journal writing project that they had created back in the early 90s. And their project entailed participants who were faculty members pairing up either in cross-racial pairs or in same-race pairs and exchanging journal entries in which they were describing and recounting personal experiences with racism. So we read this paper and were just intrigued and inspired by what we read. We had never come across something like this in academic writing before or something like this that was situated within a school of social work. The writing was honest and there was a lot of candor and both revealing of themselves and holding each other accountable for what was noticed and shared. And in the article that we read, Dr. Garcia and Dr. Swenson suggested that this sort of approach, this journal writing approach, could be replicated either within agency settings or other faculties or even with advanced students who wanted to become more self-aware and develop these sorts of anti-racist practices. So Allison and I had a conversation and uh, many conversations and decided that we wanted to create our own anti-racism project. We were at the same school of social work many years later and felt like doctoral education was a natural time to do something like this. We were already back in school to deepen our knowledge, to gain new skills, to develop our professional identities as advanced clinical scholars, and felt like this fit as a piece of that, to be a leader in the field who could really address racism and white privilege in our immediate surroundings and then bring those conversations forward. So our anti-racism project really arose out of part inspiration of reading a piece that resonated with both of us, and in part out of a felt need that we had to grow and develop in this way during our doctoral education. Oh, that's really interesting. So what did your anti-racism project entail? Right. So I love to, Ashley, that you spoke about our kind of foundation as this balance between inspiration and a felt need. It was the right time and the right moment for our lives personally, professionally, academically. And so I feel so relieved that we found each other at that time. 
because I wonder how it would have felt otherwise, just thinking about that now. So in terms of what the project entailed, I think about it as, you know, developing the ARP, the anti-racism project, as pre-work, beginning, middle, and and then post-work for us. So in terms of the pre-work, as Ashley mentioned, we found each other. We were both wanting something more. We started spending time together in brainstorming. What would this look like? What was this felt need? What did we feel like we were getting? Where did we feel like things were limited? This pre-work time also included us connecting with the intergroup dialogue literature. And so intergroup dialogue is about doing cross-identity dialogue and acknowledging multi-systemic systems of, of privilege and oppression with the purpose of taking action. So that was kind of one of our foundational concepts that we worked with as well to get this going and to help guide our work. We also worked really hard to understand and really think about the place of power within managing this kind of group. We also thought a lot about how we wanted to place and situate the promotion of mutuality and transformation and growth in this group. It was really at the forefront of our work together. In this stage, we also found faculty members who understood our vision, doctoral faculty members as we were students, who also agreed to be our consultants, our supports, and our advocates. We asked for and were able to get approval from our doctoral program director to earn credit from this work. And just as an aside, most doctoral programs do not have built-in core equity course offering. So this work is often an add-on, this really important equity work, which means that sometimes this equity work doesn't happen as a core course or otherwise because we're limited by institutional supports and the lack of institutional supports. And these supports may be academic or financial or social. So we were able to do this add-on work and also get some academic kind of compensation or support for doing this kind of work, which is really essential, right? We're social workers and we need this work to really count and be visible and to take the space it's supposed to take as social workers. So this pre-work also included identifying topic areas and just to guide our group, we wanted to have some structure to our group while also allowing flexible space. We wanted to make sure that we had a direction, right, to guide our work. So these topics included an introduction to the project, how social workers talk about race and racism, the interpersonal effects of anti-racism work, anti-racist approaches to teaching, anti-racist approaches to practice, and a conclusion of the project. So again, this is all happening before we had our group members. We wanted to make sure that we created a space that was clear and transparent where we did the right amount of work on the front end to make sure that it was an effective and strong space. So during the pre-work stage, we also gathered readings, we recruited members, of which we ended up with six, including ourselves. And Ashley and I served as facilitators and participants, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, but that was an important piece of our work. We also got IRB approval, we located audio equipment, and we acquired space. So all these nitty gritty pieces that are a little bit boring, but they're really essential to doing this kind of work. We have to carve out the physical space for it. So during the groups, we discussed the previously identified topics, but we didn't hold the topics rigidly. We used them to provide some structure and as a common starting place, but we really let the group just talk and do the dialogue and bring in pieces of narrative that were present and relevant in the space for the particular group members. I think that was really a good thing. The other part of this was that our group members also exchanged journals in pairs several times during the semester. Ashley and I created the journaling pairs based on the group members' self-identified experiences and interests. So they shared this information with us before their group started to help us get a sense of who would be, you know, kind of appropriate matches and what kinds of matching pairs would support growth and transformation and question and challenge. 
Ashley and I also exchanged journals, and we exchanged journals within our dual role as both participants and facilitators. So that was kind of the body of the work. That's the during the work. And at the end of the project, Ashley and I uh, met again to talk about what things felt like and also to write a report and to think about next steps. That was the work. That was what it entailed. Well, I hear you saying that you had a dual role, that you both created a space for others as facilitators, and that you also furthered your own anti-racism work by participating. What was it like to fill those dual roles as part of the anti-racism project? Exactly. So as Allison was describing, these dual roles really fit well together and one informed the other. And we were committed to participating fully and deeply in the project. We didn't want to just create a forum and a space for others and then observe our peers' work. So in many ways, our process was quite similar to the other pairs. We exchanged journal entries and took turns who would write the first entry and who would respond and how we would negotiate that. And in these journal entries, we really grappled with what was coming up for us in this process, whether it was talking about our racial socialization, whether we were talking about our current racial identities and how that has evolved over time, talking about our daily experiences within a racist culture, for me, noticing my white privilege and all of the ways that it shows up. So we shared these stories and feelings and questions and responded to one another and asked permission to ask more questions and to really support and explore what was arising as we did this work. And then when we came together for our discussion sessions as a whole group, Allison and I took turns alternating with the various duties of facilitation, things we were very familiar with from doing group work as social workers. So things like drafting an agenda, posing questions to begin a discussion or transitioning from one part to the next, being a timekeeper, these sorts of things. We really traded off so that we both took ownership of the space and could be present in different ways. And then we exchanged a separate journal, an additional journal, which we called the Facilitator's Journal, in which we reflected on what we noticed in the group session. Some of these comments tended to be things like, the ways we noticed the group was moving towards or away from a particular topic or the ways that group members were challenging or supporting other members or ways that different individuals were using the group space for consultation, perhaps. So we reflected on all of this and really tried to step back from our own involvement and think about the group as a whole and how we could support each other in bringing some of these observations to the next session and kind of where we would go next. I also felt like too, that, you know, it was such a powerful position holding dual roles. And it's kind of a tricky dance at times because part of it is about staying into an active than the dynamic of the group, while also doing your own transformative work as a human, as a social worker. And so it was exhilarating and complicated at times. Oh, I can imagine. When considering the ways that each of you bring yourselves to this work, I'm aware that you are a biracial pair. What did that mean for this project? Right. So I'm Black American and Ashley identifies as white American. And so the research about facilitating mixed social identity justice groups is that they can be most effective when this work is done in cross-cultural or cross-identity pairings. And anecdotally, 
I've been in jobs where kind of racial equity dialogue was the goal. And so I know this to be true based on what I'd experienced before and what I experienced now for sure. You know, the truth of the matter is sometimes white people need to dialogue about multi-systemic racial privilege and oppression and their effects with a white person. And sometimes people of color need to do that work with a white person, right? Sometimes people of color need to talk about multi-systemic racial privilege and oppression and their effects with another person of color. And sometimes white people need to do that work with other people of color. And so as a facilitator, I needed my partner to make use of her identities that are different from mine to be of support and to validate and to authenticate and to clarify. And so it was important for us to be very aware of our social identities and be really honest about them and really make use of them for the benefit of the group and for ourselves. And so in a group, in the moment, it's not always clear when this is going to happen, like when we're going to meet each other in these ways. So it's so important that we are both there. And I really appreciated so much doing this work in a cross-racial pairing. It changed my life in a lot of ways. And by that, I mean, it was really important for our relationship and our growth and transformation as people, as social workers, as participants, as facilitators, and as burgeoning educators. I really believe that one way to heal from the illness of multi-systemic privilege and oppression, here talking about racism, is to be part of an honest and supportive and mutual and caring relationship and do that cross-racial dialogue within that relationship. You know, we're social workers, right? We know that healing occurs through the relationship in part. There are many ways to do healing, but one is through relationship. So this is our work with one another. And I don't know if I anticipated that going in, but it's something that happened for me. I got to have this experience, right? Being seen, warts and all, right? And being accepted and heard and challenged and questioned and then accepted again. That said, it has to be in the right relationship. Sometimes relationships can do damage, but this was the right relationship for me, for sure. And it changed my professional life as an educator, as a person who teaches equity content, both in a core format and an integrated um, format, and also as a person and as a social worker. It sounds like a truly transformative experience. Just echo that as well. I think we were excited when we began the project, but didn't fully realize all of what was going to unfold and really how we would be changed as individuals, but also how our relationship would deepen. And I I think there's a way that we know our peers or we think we know our peers, but it's until we really have a sustained and ongoing commitment to having conversations like this, that we really get to know each other and get to reveal parts of ourselves that we might not reveal as fully in a classroom discussion or a casual conversation. And I think many of those qualities that build good relationships, authenticity, trust, feeling understood, and working through conflict, working through those times where we feel misunderstood or wish we had been seen and supported more deeply. That gets you to a new place and a a new respect for one another and trust in the relationship as a whole. And all of that happened and continues to happen. And I think that's been one of the gifts that I wasn't expecting when we started all of this work. That's really wonderful. This seems like a good point to shift towards your research and your analysis together since you talk about how this allowed you to develop a relationship that was part of your collaboration. You use the material generated from the anti-racism project as research data. What findings emerged from the data analysis? So we have the hunch that we might like to reflect on the process and the content of what came up after the project finished. So as Allison said, we obtained IRB permission to use both the journal entries as well as our audio tape discussion sessions as research data. 
and had our participants sign an informed consent that they knew that this was being asked of them and, and that they agreed. We did make sure to respect the privacy of each journaling dyad as they were building a relationship and immersed in the process. So we assured them that we were not going to access their journals until after the project ended so that they really had the space to do that work without feeling like we were looking over their shoulder. And we actually waited a while after we finished the project before we accessed the journals and first just did that initial immersion in the data and spent some time really reading the exchanges and appreciating what all unfolded for each pairing. And we're actually surprised by some of what we read, things that we had no idea were unfolding between the partners at the time. Allison and I engaged in a qualitative thematic analysis we surfaced themes and made sure that the themes were present across all of the pairings. And while much of the data really did focus on the participants' personal experiences, some of it focused on doctoral education. And I wanted to mention the four main themes that we found, because I think they are, they tell us something important about where anti-racism work and doctoral education meet. So the first theme could be described as experiences with racism in doctoral education as a doctorant. So things like whether or not racism was raised in courses, where it was, where it wasn't, our reaction to not having a course on issues of oppression and privilege at the doctoral level in our program, the racial composition of our student body and the faculty, and really grappling with how to infuse anti-racist principles in the work that we were doing in our emerging research and scholarship. And then the second theme related to the ways that we notice white privilege in social work education, certainly at the doctoral level, but in my experience, this holds true across levels of social work education. Thinking about the ways that white students' privilege affects, I'll speak for myself, how I move and what I expect from the school, and noticing the ways that white privilege is really infused in the structures of the school in ways that are problematic and not always transparent. And then a third theme related to our developing the ability to teach as an anti-racist educator. All of the members of the group really saw themselves going into academic positions after graduation. And so we thought about in our current positions as adjunct instructors, how we experienced and managed students' resistance to learning about racism, how we used ourselves with a lot of attention paid to our um, our social locations, how we used ourselves to help students grapple with this material, and taking responsibility for teaching about racism and privilege, no matter what content area we teach. It doesn't matter if we're teaching practice or policy or research, a theory course, working in the field, we need to be talking about this everywhere. Our last theme that came up repeatedly was around anticipating the job market. So as I said, we were all looking for faculty positions. And so we thought together about how to navigate and evaluate faculty positions, given how different the racial climate could be on, at different schools, and thinking about what resources and allies we would need to locate to feel like we could be supported and sustained in this work wherever we ended up. So these were the themes that came up having to do with social work doctoral education, and I think it's important to highlight these also as opportunities for schools to support doctoral students in becoming more equipped. These themes certainly spoke of our experiences, but could also help us understand more about the ways in which 
social work doctoral programs could prepare us to become leaders in the field. I see how your work really speaks to how doctoral students of social work have the potential to be change agents. What do the findings tell us about how social work doctoral programs could prepare students to be leaders in advancing social justice? Yeah, these findings got us thinking about a lot, a whole lot of things. And so one kind of major piece is that there are both curricular and co-curricular action steps that we felt arose from our findings. First and foremost, I do believe, we believe that core courses about multi-systemic privilege and oppression and courses about how to teach about multi-systemic privilege and oppression and courses about how to organize and lead lead social justice movements are really essential to advanced social work scholars. It's an essential part of our work this really outlines who we are as a profession. And what Ashley and I realized was that about 90% or so of social work doctoral programs do not include a core course about equity content. We did find that most, about 100%, right, of doctoral programs do offer at least a standalone course about research or about statistics, but this equity content is missing largely. And it really made us wonder about that you know, what sorts of messages, what does this mean, right, about what is relevant to us, what is of importance to us, what is material as a group of social work leaders, right? So we need to really think about that. We argue that this content should be both offered in a core capacity, but also integrated. That said, there also have to be systemic supports for this kind of work. Faculty who are teaching these courses need support. Faculty who are teaching these courses So what the research shows and what I've also found, because I teach an equity core course in my current institution, and I've taught these courses in the past at other institutions, this work is marginalized and marginalizing. We kind of sit on the edges. Faculty who teach this content, I found, are more likely to be challenged about the realities of privilege and oppression, sometimes through microaggression, sometimes through clear expressions of multisystemic privilege and oppression that 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 are not at all subtle. Faculty in these courses need to hold the needs of the entire group. We have to care for historically marginalized students and also care for those students who have experienced more privilege and maybe haven't thought about these ideas, these concepts very consistently and don't have a frame for critically analyzing them. Because in this kind of setting, things get said. The purpose is intergroup dialogue, but that means these are areas of conflict and of fear and of maybe some outdated language that one is surprised about. And so the faculty member is managing all of these pieces and there are more to it, of course, than the other pieces like making sure the syllabus makes sense and making sure that you have the concepts you wanna share. That's what all faculty members face, but there's also this underlying aspect of talking about content that we are constantly told by society doesn't exist and doesn't matter. That multi-systemic privilege and oppression is a thing of the past. Those are the narratives we receive as a society, but our job as we teach these courses are actually to say, wait a minute, that's actually not the case, and this is how it comes up. And so there's a lot of defensiveness and feeling and wonder and fear in these courses, and faculty have to negotiate that, and it can be a lot. I also think that, so faculty need support, they need support from other faculty members, they need support from the institution, but and students obviously also need support, right? that's why we're here. So micro and macro aggressions fly around in the space. 
we have to figure out how to manage conflict in the space as faculty members and also help our students understand how to manage conflict when these kinds of dialogues arise. It's important for us to ask students. So let's talk about a time you've experienced conflict in a conversation. What went well? What went less well? What were you like in this situation? What was the other person like? Was there anything you would change? Is there anything that you would repeat so that students can problem solve on their own because our job really is to build skills. It's to help them understand some of these concepts, but also build skills around doing intergroup dialogue. So all of these pieces are happening in the room. So that's some of the curricular stuff. And another thing to add about that is that it's important to also infuse historical components into these classes while also staying really current, helping present day students understand where multi-systemic privilege and oppression exist in the lives and the air they breathe around them currently, because I found that students have a hard time with that piece. Because again, the narrative societally is that these things don't exist anymore. So we have to help students understand that unfortunately they still are here. And our next step is seeking liberation and changing systems. So in terms of the co-curricular efforts, you know, there also need to be programming outside of the classroom for students and faculty to work together on intergroup dialogue, to engage in social action, to do this in affinity groups, to do this in, in mixed social identity groups, while also staying very aware of power and that the role of power in these kinds of groups, for sure. But again, there are things that need to happen in the classroom and outside of the classroom, and not just in the school social work building and in the hallways there, but also across the campus. And I really do think that social workers can, can and should be at the front lines of this. But before we can do that, we have to make sure our social workers are trained to do this work. So it kind of brings me back to where I started. If doctoral social work students don't have this kind of core content, that means we're missing on an opportunity for advanced social work scholars to lead these kinds of efforts in a multi-systemic fashion with individual bodies in the classroom, but also across campus. Well, absolutely. We need that kind of training to lead these difficult conversations. I can see your passion for the work. Have your experiences in the anti-racism project affected your professional life or trajectory? Absolutely. I think both of us together and separately. Three things come to mind for me. One is simply having the chance to talk about this work has been powerful and a way to keep the momentum moving forward, being able to talk about what the experience was like for us, but also to encourage other people to do their own self-assessment work and to use the self-assessment to really surface actions that can be taken, because I think that's an important piece. The reflection needs to motivate action, and the action needs to come back to more reflection to keep the process going. And, it, you know, it feels especially timely to talk about this work now. I think it's always timely and important to talk about racism and the white supremacy that exists. But with certainly with the uptick in racial violence and, you know, throughout the U.S. and the lack of accountability for these acts and the ways that racism is really embedded within the institutions and structures of our society, it just feels even more important to use our positions as teachers and leaders and social work to do our part to calling attention to the need to do racial justice work. So that's one piece of where this work has continued on. As we mentioned, since earning our doctorates, Allison and I have both moved into academic positions and social work programs. 
And so in our roles as instructors, I think we're cognizant about using ourselves and using our voices in the classroom and within a faculty to call attention to the ways that inadvertently are the very structures of our school or the very ways that agencies are run or our students are trained can reinforce a racial hierarchy that we want to call attention to and to affect change. And then I think for me, the last thing is really, you know, this experience creating the anti-racism project, it came about because we didn't find places in our doctoral program where we could fully delve into issues around racism and white privilege. And I think having had that experience, it's helped me realize that, you know, if something is missing, I can create it. I don't have to wait for others to come along with the resources and the supports and the spaces that I need. But together, we can figure out what's missing and support each other in creating what we need. And I think it was a really empowering lesson in professional development and one that I can continue to replicate when I have that sense going forward. Ashley, I love what you just said about kind of plugging into your power and recognizing that, hey, I may experience this lack, systemic lack, but I can do something to make change. Isn't that what social work is, right? It's identifying where systems are not maybe functioning as optimally as we could, small systems and larger systems, and then thinking about, well, what do I need to do to to change the system, no matter how small or large? As Ashley mentioned, we both are in academic positions. I was having a a similar feeling about, okay, so what do I want to do next? And my research is centered around racial justice and teaching racial justice and social work education. But part of what I felt like I needed this year as a new faculty member, as a junior faculty member, was to create my own kind of informal consultancy around teaching racial equity. And so I asked two other faculty members who are senior faculty members, one white woman, one black woman, who are also teaching this content to start meeting together, just talk. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? Because again, teaching this kind of content, it's emotional, it's really challenging, it's exciting, and it takes some real skill and self-awareness and ability to reflect. And I knew I needed their perspective to help me be an even better teacher of this content. And I don't know if I hadn't worked on the ARP with Ashley, I don't know if I would have known that that's what I needed or that I could do it or that I should do it and that I'm worth doing it. Well, it sounds like it was a great success. Earlier, one of you described a cyclical process of action followed by reflection. And I'm wondering, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would have changed about the structure or process of the anti-racism project? Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot as, again, I, I teach equity, a core equity content course now. And so I'm constantly wondering about what did I learn from being part of the ARP and how can I use that knowledge to be a better teacher? And I think what I do now as a teacher is that I talk a lot more about intersectionality. So the ARP was a group that was really centered around racial justice, which is incredibly important. But I think because of my developmental space, my age, the time, I didn't know how to use the concept of intersectionality to help myself talk more about the ways that multi-systemic privilege and oppression work themselves out in the lives of our group members. By this, I mean, I think it was hard for some of us to really understand our role in racism because we weren't as clear about how it impacted us because we didn't understand intersectionality, that we possess both targeted and privileged identities in the same body. And I think for some of the group members, if I had been able to talk more about that, maybe they would have understood racism in a different way. 
that's one thing. Did we talk about intersectionality? Of course we did, but I don't know if my understanding was deep enough to help the group members, or I don't know if they would have helped by it, but I think it would help me be able to talk about things in a deeper way. I also would have loved if we could have made this group a year long, but I think there's some things to talk about, like kind of what now, but I also think that I wish that there had been more institutional support for us to kind of campaign in a different way to get the ARP moved into a more institutional space. Meaning I kind of wish that there had been support for the ARP to be replicated or be kind of part of the curriculum or core curricular efforts in the doctoral program. That's not something about the ARP necessarily, but kind of the outcome, I I suppose. I also think based on where I was in terms of like development and age and and level of power and agency, I wish that I had been more confident to work through some of the conflicts that arose in the group. I wish I'd allowed myself to sit with some of the conflict a little bit longer because I think that I could have learned something from that and the group members could have learned something from that too. Yeah, I really echo the ideas that you have, Allison, about ways that this work could have been expanded and held within the institution, not just within a passionate and committed group of our peers. I think for me, one of the other pieces that I was really struck with that I don't think I anticipated from the start, but maybe I would have thought about in a different way, was really the relational piece. You know, when we started this work, I was very focused on the work, the facilitation, the readings, the doing the reflection and the journaling and the discussions. But as I've reflected on this, I've realized that really the heart of it ended up being the relationships that were formed between journaling partners, us as facilitators, within the group as a whole, how we continued to seek each other out even after the group ended because we needed consultation and we knew who our allies were and we had developed that level of trust. And I really, as I've continued to go on in doing anti-racism work and addressing white privilege, I've come to just appreciate how big racial injustice is, you know, just how the disparities and the inequities are so real and so significant and profound. And I can easily find myself in that place of feeling like, well, I'm just, you know, one person and I can get overwhelmed or paralyzed or feel like I have to figure it all out or feel an urge to just walk away at times. I mean, all of those are really manifestations of my privilege. But I think it's, you know, when I really settle in and to doing this work in a relational way and finding people who are committed and trying as well, that it feels like there's something, it can be sustained and that it's hopeful and that I've got support and accountability. And I think we do need each other in different ways in this process and need to keep calling others into the movement as well. And this is where I feel like a social worker doing this work. Mm. Social work is very relational and anti-racism work is very relational. And I think I get that in a deeper way now. Ashley, I love that you just said that because I've been thinking so much lately about doing this work and really doing the kind of intergroup dialogue, multi-systemic privilege and oppression work. I've been saying to folk lately, and hopefully this doesn't sound too wild, but I feel like I finally get what it means to be a social worker, really. Yeah. Well, both of you comment on how this part of being a, a social worker is the relational work. And with that in mind, have either of you been a part of campus-based racial justice work and those kind of relationships since the anti-racism project? I think we both have. For me, I now teach at a school that has a social work department 
that's committed to justice-based social work practice. So my teaching, my scholarship, the work that my department does, it is infused with this anti-oppressive framework that just guides how we see things and how we think and how we address issues of power and privilege. So I think I have found a home where I can continue to do this work in a really connected and authentic way. I have to say that, you know, no matter how many times I teach this material, whether it's a course that's specifically about oppression and privilege, or it's mentoring student projects and being connected to student organizations, you know, the students keep it real and they're the best teachers. And I have felt this powerful energy from students, particularly students, I think, of this millennial generation who feel quite mobilized, are very aware of things that are going on beyond just our campus, are politically active, who embrace concepts like intersectionality and the systemic nature of oppression much earlier than I certainly did. And so I think there's something to connecting with the energy of students that helps certainly keeps me involved in a way that I feel quite passionate about. Right. I also feel really connected to doing this work across campus. I was at another social work program before this year. And so part of my role was to sit on a campus-wide kind of diversity and inclusion committee because I feel like this work, again, needs to happen in every corner of every campus. And that means the president's office, that means the classroom, that means in the lunchroom. When I started teaching at a new institution this year, I immediately reached out to the director of is it called the, the multicultural student office to get a sense of, well, what's the current climate? What's going on? Where can I be? I was fortunate enough to be a small group facilitator in a racial justice summit we had on campus a couple months ago to work in solidarity with other folk of color and other marginalized folk in response to our national context of police brutality, and also to reflect and connect with some of the campus movements across the country that are racial justice, identity justice, social justice movements. And that was really exciting. It also helped me to get a sense of where my school currently is. It also helped me to think about what actions we need to take as a community to really bring our campus where it needs to be. Because like any other institution in this country, on this globe, we're not where we need to be with regard to social justice. Also in February, we're going to do a campus-wide teach-in. And so one week in the month, every faculty member on campus has the opportunity to create a lesson plan around the Black Lives Matter movement. And I don't think every faculty member will do it, which is too bad. But I also think that not every faculty member thinks that they can do it. And so part of my role when we talk about this effort in our next faculty meeting is I'm gonna offer myself, and I don't know everything, but I do know a couple of things, but to offer myself up to support my colleagues, to help them think about lesson planning and doing lesson planning in a way that will be helpful and thoughtful around some of this content. So that's part of the work. There's so much going on nationally and across college campuses. It would be a real shame for folk not to get connected with this work. Well, there is a lot of anti-racism work left to be done. And I think you two offer an exciting model for how to further anti-racism in doctoral education and beyond, and to make this something accessible within an academic context. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Davis and Dr. Livingston, so much for taking the time to share your work with us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Our pleasure. You have been listening to Dr. Ashley Davis and Dr. Allison Livingston talk about their work with the Anti-Racism Project. 
We hope that you found their discussion to be enlightening and thought-provoking. This is Charles Sims, your host. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.